This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 3, The Meaning Crisis. Much better thinkers than I have given an account of the current crisis of meaning in the West. Peterson does a fabulous job in Maps of Meaning. John Verveke blows the lid off the whole thing in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And Alistair McIntyre gets into the normative issues in After Virtue. We will discuss all of these in this essay, but in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, John describes the crisis like this. We are in the midst of a mental health crisis. There are increases in anxiety disorders, depression, despair. Suicide rates are going up in North America, parts of Europe, other parts of the world. And that mental health crisis is itself due to and engaged with crises in the environment and the political system. And those in turn are enmeshed within a deeper cultural and historical crisis I call the meaning crisis. So the meaning crisis expresses itself and many people are giving voice to this in different ways in this increasing sense of bullshit. Bullshit is on the increase. It's more and more pervasive throughout our lives, and there's this sense of drowning in this old ocean of bullshit. And we have to understand, why is this the case? And what can we do about it? So today there's an increase of people feeling very disconnected from themselves, from each other, from the world, from a viable and foreseeable future. The symptoms of the meaning crisis are evident. Increasing mental health problems, nihilism, addiction, loneliness, and a lack of purpose and coherence in life, individually and culturally. However, the etymology of this crisis is more complicated. The modern crisis certainly begins in large part because of the conflict between the scientific and religious worldviews, immortalised in Nietzsche's proclamation about the death of God. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? The scientific and experimental enterprise discovered things for which the Christian worldview had no philosophical or spiritual answers, and so the religious worldview in general became unreasonable. The loss of a religious worldview cost us a comprehensive narrative that made sense of our lives, a normativity that we could use to evaluate our goals and behaviour, and a sense of connection and purpose to the world, universe, God at large. In Zombies in Western Culture, John Verveke argues that the meaning crisis in Western culture has been accompanied by the loss of three orders, the nomological, the narrative, and the normative orders. Nomological. In the Aristotelian Christian worldview, there is a deep connection between objective reality and subjective experience. Galileo's discovery of the heliocentric universe made mankind no longer the centre of the cosmos. Then Newton made us contingent in a deterministic clockwork universe of billiard ball causality. Eventually, Stephen Hawking said, we are just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. Not a very meaningful perspective. Number two, narrative. 
The Christian meta-narrative teleology, the narrative order, provided an overarching story into which the minutia of the cosmos, individuals and their own stories could fit and belong. Further, it introduced the idea that the agency of persons could intervene in the cycle of repetition and meaningfully impact the course of cosmic history. Number three, normative. Without a narrative order that specified a teleology for human beings, we no longer had a hierarchy of values from which to evaluate if we were doing good or bad. In After Virtue, McIntyre argues that the failure of a rational grounding of values in the Enlightenment was because of a lack of a teleological account of human functioning. He gives a simple analogy to describe this problem. If I have a watch, I know it's a good watch if the watch tells the time, because this is the function of the watch. Therefore, if the watch doesn't tell time and carry out its function, I can judge that it is a bad watch. Science can't specify a transcendent human purpose, as this doesn't gel with the cold dead universe hypothesis. And for most naturalists like Richard Dawkins, human beings are made by a blind watchmaker. Evolution gave us the drives of survival and reproduction, but no uniquely human purpose beyond that. And every meaning in life has to be welded on after the fact in an existential project. As Verveke writes, these three orders, the nomological order, the narrative and the normative, became tightly integrated and mutually supporting. The story of God's love, narrative order, inspired the rational, mystical ascension to God, normative order, through the deep connection between the rational mind and the structure of the cosmos, nomological order. The world was inherently meaningful, beautiful, rational, valuable and spiritual. We were all tightly connected to this cosmos and we had a coherent place and purpose within it. No more. The scientific worldview broke apart the Christian system and scattered the three orders to the wind. Peterson argued this split between objective reality, things matter, and subjective reality, values, meanings, emotions, caused a divorce for modern individual psychological integrity. The great forces of empiricism and rationality and the great technique of the experiment have killed the myth and it cannot be resurrected, or so it seems. We still act out the precepts of our forebears, nonetheless, we can no longer justify our actions. In other words, we are still largely operating on a Judeo-Christian moral framework, but without the Christian metaphysics that justified that normative framework's existence. As Nietzsche argued, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. This sets up an internal conflict for modern individuals. We believe certain things are good and others are bad, but have no way of rationally justifying why this is the case. We act out our values, but no longer understand why we do what we do. As Peterson says, we carry on as if our experience has meaning, as if our activities have transcendent value, but we are unable to justify this belief intellectually. As discussed in Article 1, we have to value in order to see, uh, and these values constitute moral decisions. And yet we have no rational or scientific basis for these moral decisions and for deciding ultimately what should be. I can almost hear people exclaiming, what's the point? Because of this schism between morals, values and objective reality, morality became loose from reality and people started to doubt the existence of morality in general. 
the idea that morality is subjective, which in the scientific worldview means fiction, became paramount. As individuals, we can't live without meaning, and the culture is composed of individuals, so this is where we must start, healing the schism within ourselves and returning what was lost but never forgotten. Chapter 2. Mapping out the problem space. As we spoke about in the second article, what we see happening in the West is people taking the back road into a wisdom or spiritual tradition, which explains the rise in Stoicism and Buddhism. These virtue ethics have versions of the three orders built into them, although often in a less obvious and dogmatic way. All these virtue ethics have the following characteristics, a conception of the highest human good, a conception of moral virtues as cultivated states of character manifested by exemplary persons, a conception of the practical path of moral self-cultivation, a conception of what human beings are generally like. The power in this framework lies that they can answer questions that the scientific worldview cannot. However, the downside is many predatory ideologies and pseudo-religions, the cult-making factory of social media also springs to mind, uh, provide answers to these three orders and coherence for our experience, attention and action, but in ways that are ultimately not good for us and for society at large. This is what Nietzsche was talking about in The Death of God. Because of the lack of a coherent worldview, we would settle for ideological substitutes, but these systems become pathological and cause the death and destruction that we see in the 20th century. So we discussed in the last article the critique of virtue traditions as culturally relative. Shannon Valor's attempt to avoid this critique by abstracting universal principles from the separate traditions but that ultimately she hadn't put together the three orders that we need. So is there another way? Chapter 3. Rebuilding the Narrative Order Brett Anderson, who I recently had on the podcast, has been undertaking just such a project and attempting to offer a scientific grounding for values in his Intimations of a New Worldview substack. To be clear, this is my interpretation of Brett's work and in no way reflective of his thoughts, and I highly recommend reading his essay here. In his essay, Brett makes eight claims and backs them up with argumentation. Number one, there is a general process involved in the ongoing creation and complexification of everything. In biology, this process manifests as an increase in the scope of non-zero-sum games over the course of evolution. The large brain size in human beings was socially and sexually selected based on our ability and propensity to participate in the process of discovering and facilitating non-zero-sum games which is equivalent to the process of complexification. Number four, John Verveke's relevance realization is how this process of complexification manifests in cognitive development. Number five, ever since human beings evolved the ability to talk, we've been telling stories about people who are best able to participate in this process. Over time, the general pattern underlying these stories was abstracted out and encoded into the hero mythologies found cross-culturally. Number six, our participation in this process is biologically and psychologically optimal. Number seven, our participation in this process, which is equivalent to relevance realization, is equally our participation in the process of creation complexification itself. Number eight, the pattern of behavior that characterizes optimal participation in that process is best understood as a personality. That personality is in large part what our ancestors implicitly meant by God. For most of this essay, we'll be exploring numbers four to six, 
and particularly Brett's thesis that the human telos is captured in Jordan Peterson's hero metamythology, and that the hero metamythology describes narratively the process of relevance realization, how this is biologically and psychologically optimal for human beings. The hero metamythology. Peterson argues there is a universal shared structure to myths across cultures, contrary to McIntyre's point in After Virtue, which he calls the metamythology. This universal mythology has been observed by numerous other thinkers like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and is general enough to be taught as story structure in most courses on writing. Peterson argues this general pattern of myths and stories represents how individuals and cultures update their frame and adapt to novel circumstances while maintaining optimal motivational and emotional valence. The metamythology suggests an ideal character which Peterson describes as the hero. As he writes in Maps of Meaning, the hero is a narrative representation of the individual eternally willing to take creative action, endlessly capable of originating new behavioural patterns, eternally specialised to render harmless or positively beneficial something previously threatening or unknown. He goes on to expand, it is a declarative representation of the pattern of behaviour characteristic of the hero that eventually comes to approximate the story of the saviour. Behind every particular that is historical, adventurer, explorer, creator, revolutionary, peacemaker, lurks the image of the Son of God, who sets his impeccable character against tyranny and the unknown. In other words, myths represent successful modes of being in the world. We watched people live and we abstracted the best patterns from them, and over time these composite patterns became hero stories. And what they deal with isn't fictional. It is a problem that we have universally, which is that we have to choose what we value, what should be, and by extension, what patterns of action we should take to transform the present into the desired future. This is how Peterson describes the world of myth. Number one, what is the meaning of the current state of experience or the unbearable present state? Number two, what should be? To what valuable end should we be moving? idealized future. The goal imagined ideal state implies a theory about the good, aka a vision of perfection to which the current state of affairs is compared. Number three, how should we act therefore? Way or action pattern? How do we transform the unbearable present state into the desired future state? This metamythology maps on quite nicely to the three orders that we have described with number three as the normative order, the narrative order aiming towards the good or the ideal goal, and then a recognition of the current state that we're in that needs to be transformed. Peterson says we tell stories of the individuals who embody the ideal pattern of action and then imitate them. First, we imitate the pattern underlying admirable behaviours, then we encode that pattern into rituals, then into narratives, then into philosophical argumentation, then finally we gain an empirical scientific understanding of it. In this way, the image of the hero step by step becomes ever clearer and ever more broadly applicable. The information on how to act is shared with others of the same tradition and beliefs and encoded in myths and stories to emulate, but always fundamentally limited by the unknown, hence the requirement for the revivification of myths and heroes to deal with novel circumstances. Peterson describes four main kinds of myths. One, a stable pre-existing order like the Garden of Eden, 
Two, the emergence of some kind of disruptive novelty, a dragon, a monster. Three, the dissolution of a stable state, a pathological or tyrannical kingdom. And four, the process of regenerating stability, renewing the state. A meta-mythology like the Christian worldview combines all of these types of myths together to form a comprehensive guide to the unknown and the challenges that we might face. In Peterson's view, the known is when we know the pattern of action to take to transform the present into the desired future. The known protects us from the overwhelming nature of the unknown, which we experience as threatening or punishing. This is why the destruction of our stories leads to the chaos which feels so overwhelming, and why people are willing to fight and die for seemingly arbitrary ideological positions. The problem with the known is that it easily stagnates and becomes tyrannical. Therefore, we should not identify with either the known or the unknown, but the process by which we turn one into the other, which Brett argues is the process of relevance realization that occurs at the border of order and chaos. As Peterson writes, identification with this process ensures that emotion will stay optimally regulated and action remain possible, no matter how the environment shifts and no matter when. The cognitive basis for the hero metamythology. If you remember in Article 1, we discussed relevance realization briefly, which is our ability to intelligently ignore the vast number of non-optimal solutions and zero in on the small subset of solutions that are optimal or nearly optimal. Brett argues in his substack, Peterson's metamythology maps onto the process of relevance realization. And he does so for these three reasons. One, both occur at the border of order and chaos. Peterson frequently describes the hero as mastering the known world and entering the unknown to create more habitable order. This occurs, of course, at the border between order and chaos, as too much chaos is destructive and too much order is stagnating. Peterson points out that this is where we experience meaning, and Verveke also notes that a flow state, which is the most meaningful state of subjective experience, also occurs at the border of order and chaos, at the edge of our competence where we are developing ourselves. There's also a growing body of literature and complexity that links this process to the process of creation itself. Number two, the metamythology has the same basic process as an insight. A hero myth has the same structure as an insight in cognitive science, which is key to relevance realization. Brett describes an insight as letting go of a previous way that we are framing a problem, which has been rendered dysfunctional or non-optimal for whatever reason, and adopting a new, more functional frame that allows us to solve whatever problem we are engaged with more effectively. The way this looks is that one, there's a relatively stable way a person is framing the world. Number two, for whatever reason, whether because of novel sensory input or their own internal dynamics, the person realizes that their current frame is dysfunctional or non-optimal. Three, the person breaks their current frame, causing an increase in behavioral entropy. Number four, the person adopts a new, more functional frame. This is the aha moment causing a decrease in behavioral entropy, such that there is even less entropy than before the insight. Three, the meta-mythology is the process by which relevance realization occurs. Brett writes, the process of exploration and update, i.e. the meta-mythology, is the process by which we determine the motivational relevance of novel stimuli. To put it simply, the metamythology is relevance realization, described in terms of a narrative and phenomenological structure rather than in the terms of modern cognitive science. 
Myth describes the process by which the current frame has to be sacrificed, the forces of entropy and chaos face voluntarily, and a new and better frame form that actually lowers entropy, often not just for the character, but for the culture at large. This is the mythological motif of facing the dragon, getting the gold, and bringing it back to the village. The gold is an insight. What I'm arguing here is that the hero metamythology suggests a universal ideal that's grounded in the scientific worldview and gets us out of the problem of cultural relativism. It's what all stories are aiming at, and succeed or don't succeed to varying levels. Brett points out how the metamythology avoids the teleological issue because there is no final goal towards which the universe is aiming. Rather, the process itself is the goal. This constitutes an infinite game rather than a finite game. So we don't get stuck on any kind of metaphysical stickiness. In other words, the hero metamythology is the process of updating one's frame, realizing relevance, and counts as a definition of a successful mode of being. There is a great deal of scientific evidence that the border of order and chaos is psychologically and biologically optimal for human beings and essential for realizing relevance and that the process of updating one's frames is more important than any particular frame itself due to the complexity of the environment. The hero is one who is endlessly willing to break the frame or to protect it and courageously pursue transformation, adaption, and hence truth and reality. Example of the process, the myth of Oedipus. It's all good and well described in this process in the abstract, but what does it actually look like in a myth? During a recent podcast, Brett and John discussed the hero metamythology, and John made a valuable critique of what about tragic heroes? How do they convey this heroic process of realizing relevance or not? Or do they break and frustrate the logic of the hero metamythology and thus change the story that we're telling? John used the example of the myth of Oedipus, which I actually wrote an adapted version of for my master's thesis in creative writing, so I'm deeply familiar with the characters and plot and underlying mechanisms. The story of Oedipus stretches back to some undefined point in prehistory. It is first mentioned by Homer, but was largely formalised by Sophocles in the 5th century BC in his three Theban plays. The story is really about Thebes, which began long before Oedipus was born. And Thebes is often the mythological antagonist or shadow side of Athens, where Sophocles was writing from. Thebes was a cursed place because of the mythological founder Cadmus. Cadmus, while searching for his sister Europa, who was kidnapped by Zeus, received a prophecy from the Oracle of Delphi that he would follow a cow with a crescent moon on its flank and build a city where the cow fell dead. Cadmus quickly forgot about his sister and Zeus, and because of either cowardice or loyalty to the prophecy, started to follow this cow. Sure enough, eventually the cow died, and Cadmus sent men to get water from a well for the sacrifice, but these men were then attacked by a serpent of Ares. Cadmus went and fought the serpent and killed it, as a good cultural hero was supposed to do. However, Ares was not happy about his favourite serpent getting killed, and so Cadmus had to become his servant for eight years. Cadmus created Thebes by sowing the teeth of the dead dragon into the ground, and creating a fierce race of fighters called the Spartoi. He had them fight each other, and the remaining five helped him to build the city of Thebes. Cadmus's whole life was haunted by the killing of the serpent, and eventually he said, if the gods like a serpent so much, you might as well turn me into one. And he and his wife got turned into snakes by Ares. Generally, his whole life has been haunted by this event and, as we'll soon find out, the lives of his ancestors. 
so Oedipus was in trouble from the start. In fact, his own father, King Laius, tried to have him killed as a baby. King Laius was warned by the Oracle of Delphi, the same one that warned Cadmus, that his son would slay him, and so he tried to kill Oedipus before that happened. However, the messenger who was sent to do the job could not kill Oedipus, and so left him to die, and a farmer found him instead. Oedipus was adopted by the childless King Polybus and Merope in Corinth, and grew up not knowing about his parentage. Story varies here. Some say that towards his late teens there were rumours about his parentage, and so in early manhood Oedipus visited the Oracle of Delphi to figure out his future. However, he received a prophecy that he was fated to kill his mother and marry his father, and so resolved to never return to Corinth, which is a pretty reasonable fate to want to avoid. But the lesson here, as always, is that you can't change fate by running away. On the road to Thebes, where he planned to move from Corinth, Oedipus ran into a churlish old man and his uh, herald, and when asked to move out of the way, in a rage, he killed the man who turned out to be his father, King Laius. In the meantime, the throne of Thebes was occupied by Creon, a steward, and the brother of the queen of Thebes, Jocasta, Oedipus's mother. After the death of the king, a sphinx started wandering the land and munching on people if they couldn't answer its riddles. Creon offered the position of the king and the hand of the queen to whoever could answer the sphinx's riddle, and so plucky Oedipus took on the task. The riddle was, what walks on four feet in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three at night? Oedipus, being a big clever clogs, answered the riddle, man. As an infant, he crawls on all fours. As an adult, he walks on two legs, and in old age, he uses a walking stick. For his heroism and saving Thebes from the Sphinx, Oedipus got to marry his own mother and become king, hence fulfilling the prophecy that he had tried to avoid. The whole story of Oedipus is about hubris, willful blindness, which could be summed up by not engaging in the process of criticality that Brett discusses in his article. The warning here, of course, is that true wisdom is not just answering riddles. Jung made much of the Sphinx metaphor as an intellectual sleight of hand in the face of real growth and development. Something like, if I can answer the question of what being a man is, then that makes me a man. Once Oedipus is king, things go from bad to worse. A curse is brought on Thebes and the crop fails, drought kicks in and social order goes to hell. Oedipus sends Creon to the Oracle of Delphi to find out what happened and how they can fix it. And the Oracle tells Creon that the murderer of Laius has to be found. And so more dramatic irony ensues as Oedipus starts to investigate himself. As part of the investigation, Oedipus consults a blind wise man named Tiresias. Tiresias himself is a very interesting mythological character and different stories abound about how he became blind and a seer. The main story is that he snuck up and saw the goddess Athena bathing when he shouldn't have and went blind as a result. However, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, he saw two snakes copulating on a mountain and stopped them. And thus, Zeus turned him into a woman for seven years and he had a family. But then figured out that if he walked the same mountain range again and just left the snakes alone, he would be changed back, which he was. However, it got worse again when Hera and Zeus disagreed about which of the sexes experienced more pleasure during sex. Hera argued the answer was men by far, so they consulted Tiresias, who had been both. Tiresias asserted that women had more pleasure than men, and Hera struck him blind. Zeus, in thanks for his support, gave him the gifts of prophecy and longevity. The blind sage is a familiar motif in myth, one who can't see but has true insight. 
Ironically, Oedipus, who is willfully blind, consults the actual blind man who tells him you are the source of the problem. But Oedipus can't see it yet and so blames everybody else. The story goes on with Oedipus investigating himself. Jocasta, his wife and mother, urges him to spot, but he keeps going and going. This could actually be considered a virtue of Oedipus, that he really genuinely pursues the truth, even to his own demise. And this is why he's a tragic character, but ultimately not to blame for his ill fortune. When the whole sordid tale unravels and Oedipus learns the truth, Jocasta takes her own life and Oedipus pokes out his eyeballs with her brooch, becoming ironically actually blind like he had been willfully blind in the story. This isn't a happy ending, but is actually a moral improvement for Oedipus. In the third Theban play by Sophocles, Oedipus a colonus, after wandering in the desert for some time, Oedipus actually becomes a holy figure. He says, I come as someone sacred, someone filled with piety and power, bearing a great gift for all your people. He is polluted, but through his quest and taking away his eyes, he gained true vision and foresight. And he even makes several prophecies that come true, including his own death and the deaths of his sons in their civil war. Theseus, the mythological founder of Athens, sympathizes with him and understands why he's holy. Oedipus praises Theseus and offers him the gift of his burial site, which will ensure victory in a future conflict with Thebes. Theseus protests, saying that the two cities are friendly, and Oedipus responds with what perhaps is the most famous speech in the play. O Theseus, dear friend, only the gods can never age, the gods can never die. All else in the world, almighty time obliterates, crushes all to nothing. Sure enough, Thebes and Athens then fight over where Oedipus will be buried. And Oedipus considers the merits of both and eventually chooses Athens. He dies in a flash of lightning from Zeus and disappears. And only the great mythological hero Theseus knows where he's buried a colonist near Athens, which ensures victory in the coming war with Thebes. Even without the additional hero story of Oedipus a colonist, the story of Oedipus Rex perfectly maps onto the meta-mythology and shows how dangerous the truth and the destruction of one's frame can really be, but that it is an improvement in the long run if the story is to be believed. The theme is one of overcoming hubris and is deeply Socratic in that the knowledge of one's own ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. Conclusion in overcoming the meaning crisis, we need to incorporate value back into the scientific worldview. Maybe this will make it a new worldview entirely. Jordan, John and Brett have laid the groundwork for this project. If we are talking about who we should be, we are talking about values. And each system of value will have a different version of that story, composed of the narrative, normative and nomological order. However, Peterson argues that the hero metamythology produces a universal ideal seen across all these cultures and traditions and a universal narrative that provides an optimal mode of being for human beings, and that this maps on to recent work in cognitive science and biology. Finally, we can see that even in tragic hero mythology series, the same logic shines through. And in the next essay, we will learn more about the nomological order, how our minds connect to reality, and Plato's cave, which indicates the connection between character, virtue, and reality.